Some of you know that I've been gone the last week and a half or so. Um, last Sunday, Mary Lee and I were able to be in Wheaton for the 95th anniversary or 95th birthday of her mother, and it was just a wonderful time. Um, <laughs> you know, being with relatives is not always wonderful, and it's just unbelievable how God answers prayer. And after many years, I just prayed and asked God as I was driving up there to make me into a decent human being. And God, amazing. What are you laughing about, Lizzie? Lizzie used to live with us. Anyhow, we had a wonderful time with Mom and with the whole family. Wonderful talk with Mark and with Peter. And, uh, but then what I wanted you to know is that you pay my salary. And because of that, I want you to know that where I've been the last two weeks is I've been writing on fatherhood. And to give you a little idea, one of the things I worked hard on this last week, the first week I did a lot of stuff connected with the church when I'm gone. I'm able to use Skype to meet with people. I'm able to use the phone. I'm able to use email. And so it's amazing how you can be away by yourself without the emotional burden of everyone, which is what I need to write. I don't know if any of you have ever written, but I just need distance. (laughs) Um, Then the second week, I worked on a chapter uh, called Bad Fatherhood. And it's a chapter dealing with how many of us have experienced terrible, terrible sin at the hands of our fathers, our stepfathers, our husbands, whatever. And one of the things in, a, in our world today is that when we see a tool being used for harm, we think that the tool should be thrown out. And so the whole world today is thrown out fatherhood because it's the source of such pain and suffering. And so the chapter is an attempt to get us to say that because a hatchet is used to kill a grandmother doesn't mean you should stop chopping wood with hatchets. Did you make the transition? (laughs) In other words, a bad use of a tool does not invalidate the tool's proper use. The abuse of fathers does not invalidate fatherhood. Are you with me? The fact that authority has been used in your life to harm you does not mean that you can throw out authority. So that's what I've been working on. I hope you're all interested. And I'm telling you that's what I've been working on because I have to give an account to you because you pay me. And I want you to know I did work hard. Okay? All right. Now, one other thing. This morning, did you see Ben leading the kids? Did any of you cry? Nobody cried. I'll bet you came close to it. My wife and I are getting more like each other the older we get. You know what it reminded me of, sweetie? It reminded me of Bob Wiersma. Bob Wiersma was a man in our church in Wisconsin. He was a farmer. He milked, I would guess, somewhere around 20 to 25 cows. And during the day, he worked at an implement dealer as a mechanic, and he was an elder. And Bob is 
just a wonderful man with a wonderful wife. And we had a whole bunch of kids in our church that came from unchurched families. They didn't have Christian fathers. And as we thought about them, we realized that these kids... More than many, maybe anything else, what they needed was they needed contact with Christian fathers, Christian men. Because for them, fatherhood wasn't safe. Are you all with me? And so a woman named Claire Jarrett, who actually has visited us and will probably come and visit us again. She, she, she's one of our closest friends. A woman named Claire Jarrett in our Christian Education Committee meeting one day said to us, uh, she proposed that because of how many kids needed to be around Christian men who were godly, that what we would do is we would have all the classes in the church taught by men, from the littlest nursery the whole way to the oldest adults, that we would remove all women from teaching in our Sunday school program, and that men would teach. Now remember, it was a woman that proposed this, and all the women thought it was a great idea except one woman who said, you know, I love teaching so much, would you just let me teach? And so she just went ahead and kept teaching. But other than that, from the littlest up to the oldest, all the classes, all the children were taught only by men. I mean, their wives helped them, but the men actually did the work. All right? Dan, you're resonating with me. How many years have you been teaching something? I think you've even been in rebellion about that a little bit, haven't you? <laughs> so how many years? Stand up. There's a man. He teaches Sunday school with his wife. And a, a number of years ago, we had a rule that you had to take a break from teaching. You know, the elders, the whole point of being an elder is to make arbitrary rules. You know, I mean, what's the point of having authority if you don't use it? You know what I'm saying? So we made an arbitrary rule that people had to, and we tried to get Dan to take a year off. Didn't work. Dan was committed to teaching Sunday school. And I'm glad we had the sense to back off. <laughs> so Bob Wiersma, a mechanic on implements and a farmer, Bob Wiersma. One Sunday, the kids came up to sing. And I was sitting in the pew, and there Bob Wiersma was, kneeling on the carpet in the center aisle, leading the tiny little children singing. I've never forgotten that. I guess you have to know Bob Wiersma. I don't know who he'd be analogous to. He's actually almost identical to you in body, but very, very different in brain. Um, anyhow, this morning, here Ben was leading us, and Ben's a single man. And if you want your car worked on, you could go to Ben. He's a man. And so I just want you to stop and think of the treasures God's given you as a church that you have a young man up here leading those children, and he actually did a pretty good job, I think. <laughs> Don't you think? Why were you laughing at him, love? I know, I'm just kidding. Oh, ha. That was weird. <laughs> so anyhow, thank you, Ben. Where are you? 
He does children's church every week. A useful man. Does any woman here have her eye on him? I mean, single women. Comparisons are odious. All right. Okay. Okay, down, boy, down. Okay, I'm back. I'm safe. Never. All right. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 7. This is the word of God, and it's eternally true. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. That means builds up. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We, I preached on this a few weeks ago, and I want to again uh, give you the, what was going on at the time so you have a feel for the tension in the church. A number of years ago, Mary Lee's brother Peter told me something that you would think any idiot knows, but I had never realized it until that moment. He looked at me and he said, Tim... He said, everybody's religious. And everybody is religious. This morning I was reading a news thing about uh, what's the name of the, the, uh, the dude from Oxford who came over to browbeat us about Christian faith. What's his name? Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, yeah. They had a rally. National Park Service estimated it somewhere between three and four people. I'm joking, (laughs) but, you know, they had a rally, and the rally was their atheist rally. They said it was the largest atheist rally or the the largest skeptical rally or the largest irreligious rally in human history. That's how they built it. And you know something? All those people gathered there had their liturgy, they had their ritual, and they had their God. They were completely religious as they condemned religion. The only thing that possibly makes sense for atheists like Chris Hitchens and other people to make such a name for themselves publicly is that they hate God. Nothing else would motivate you to do what they do. Chris Hitchens had godly parents. His, I won't go into all the details, but he has a godly brother. So what would motivate him? Remember the statement that everybody is religious. It's the only possible way to explain the big blue fans. It's the ordering principle of their life. Think about Kentucky-Louisville. Ordering principle. Think about atheists. Think about, now let's come closer to home and let's think about all of the churches on all the street corners here in town. 
okay? Religion is everywhere in this community. There's just churches everywhere. This morning, people are just filling the pews, giving money. Everybody's religious. If you've ever gone to a commencement exercise of Indiana University, I pity you. <laughs> Your parents made you walk, right? Go look at the hoods. And I'm talking about. Uh, I'm not talking about <clears throat> hip hop. I'm talking about these long, colorful things that, when they process, they wear flowing behind them. You seen these things? The hoods, the doctoral hoods, is what. And they show which institution you got your terminal degree from, right? It's religious. It's religious. It's a religion. There is nobody who does not worship. We all worship. Every one of us worships. Our gods can be very, very small. The academy is a very small god. Our gods can be very, very large. Have you ever been to, uh, to a Hindu temple? It's like there's gods everywhere. Every kind of god. Every imagination of your mind. Your god can be yourself. And that's, I think, what is always true of atheists. Is that it's, it's ultimately a self-worship and a defiance of their father. Uh, Paul Wietz has written an excellent book called uh, The Psychology of Atheism, The Cult of Self-Worship. Or no, The Cult of Defective Fatherhood, I'm sorry. Now, Corinth is just like Bloomington, or another way of saying it is Bloomington's just like Corinth, in that everything in Corinth was religion. And so they had temples and the, it was so much a part of their normal life that the meat that they ate had passed through the cult. It had gone through their worship. And so it had been, the animals had been sacrificed to their gods, all right? And their gods were idols. And so if, whether you ate at the temple as a feast or whether you ate in a home or wherever you ate, there was a good chance that that meat had gone through the civic religion of the city. Does this make sense to you? And so... In that city, amidst all the religious people, was a small little group that knew Jesus Christ, right? A small group that believed that the point of religion wasn't to make them big, but to make God big. A small little group that believed that at the heart of true worship of the true God is our confession of sin and our being like the little birdies in the nest, waiting for God to fill us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And because they were in the middle of such a pagan place of so much religion, right? And because all the meat had gone through idolatry to get to them, they'd go to somebody's house, there'd be meat sacrificed to idols. And because we continue to be sinners in the church, we're not just sinners before we come to church and then we walk in church and we're clean. You know that, right? They began to fight amongst themselves as to whether or not they should eat the meat. Now, if we're Americans, we understand perfectly fighting over food. 
Remember how I said we're surrounded by religion. And nowhere is it more clear than if you ever have gone into blooming foods. It's the ordering principle of their lives. Right? And it's equally true at Walmart. Just in a sort of gauche way. Comfort food versus healthy food. And so it's very typical for us to process our desire for spirituality through food. And so, you know, you look at somebody and say, I think you've lost a little weight. Well, yes, I have lost a little weight. I don't think you have lost. My mother-in-law, bless her heart, or was it my mother-in-law? Who was it? Somebody said to me, uh, well, never mind, but anyhow. It was in the opposite direction. Um, <laughs> and then... I had a daughter, I won't mention which one, sent me an email this week asking if I'd be offended about her looking into a specific diet. And no, as long as I can keep eating, I'm fine with that. (laughs) And so what happens is we process religion with food. Okay? And Christians do this just as much as everybody else. You can separate churches about 15 years ago based on which church was in way down and which church wasn't in way down. All right? And boy, the spirituality of people coming up to you, they hadn't seen you in a while, and and they'd lost a lot of weight. And you'd look at them and say, you've lost a lot of weight. And yes, I've learned to repent of my, uh, what was the word? Uh, Gluttony. Gluttony. And if you've ever had somebody you've loved who has been uh, anorexic, Mary Lee and I, when we first got involved in leading in church at a youth group where a young woman was constantly at the edge of death, you know the degree to which religion can control our diet. It's, 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 a, it's a strange form of religion. It's the issue of control. If you've if you're bulimic, if you cut, we process, we process our sin and our faith through our food. All right? And so here's a church of repentant sinners living in grace who all of a sudden, they begin to fight over food. And part of them believes that it's wrong to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, and the other part of them thinks it's entirely right to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And it's hard to get meat that hasn't been sacrificed to idols. And so it's very convenient for those that have enough knowledge to know it doesn't matter what meat they eat, you know, because then, of course, they can eat meat. And those who are more righteous and more sensitive and more jealous for the honor of God look down their noses at the ones who think it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols and think they're just compromisers. And so this is the church. And it's clear also that there's a lot of pride in the church that the people that are on one side look down their noses at the other and that they all think they have knowledge and they're all, you know. And that's the old thing in the church where we all want to get a leg up on other people. You know, if we're young, we look down on the old people. Old, young, fat, thin, thin, fat. College grads, high school dropouts, high school dropouts. People that are shy look down on people that are Uh, loud, and people that are loud say, would you speak up? (laughs) You know? 
And so that's what's going on in this church. You have all this division, and the division is over food, you know? Food should be the thing that unites us. Any of you sat through a meal where your mother and dad were fighting at dinner? It's awful. And as we go on in the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see that the fighting over food got even worse with this church. This is relatively tame compared to what comes later in the book. And so the Apostle Paul, being a good father, in the image of God the Father Almighty, loves the people, and it breaks his heart to see them fighting. As it breaks the heart of all parents to see their children fighting. Sometimes I say to couples in this church, would you just love each other because it hurts me if you don't? (laughs) You know? In other words, if nothing else will work, would you please spare me the pain of you not loving each other? Because it hurts, you know, and that's what parents have to do with their kids sometimes, you know. Would you just not fight just because it will make me happy, you know. And so the Apostle Paul writes them, and he, he says, okay, now I've dealt with singleness, I've dealt with marriage, I've dealt with husbands and wives that won't have sex with their partners because of this and that. All right, I'm, okay, okay, now. Concerning things sacrificed. And you can almost hear the Apostle Paul going, okay, now, concerning things sacrificed to idols. Now, I know that that's taking liberty because it doesn't say sigh in parenthesis in the text, you know. But can't you feel the Apostle Paul going, now, concerning, you know. And listen, if you're tired as a dad and as a mother in dealing with the constant difficulties of your marriage and of your family, The Apostle Paul was tired too, and he just kept working until he died. Okay? Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge, and I just don't think there's any way of reading that without hearing a little bit of, you know, I don't know what to call it, Eh, sarcasm. But I want to put a little edge on it. Now, concerning things sacrificed. We know that we all have knowledge. And then the zinger, knowledge makes arrogant. Okay, yeah, we're all knowledgeable. Knowledge makes you proud. But, so you've got knowledge here opposed to love, but love edifies. Knowledge makes you proud. Love builds you up builds us all up. Take a choice. Knowledge, love. Now, we're a church that believes that one of the problems with the church today is that it refuses to submit to Scripture in its specificity. That what it says, the words, the concepts are absolutely imperative. Otherwise, God wouldn't have bothered giving us the book of words. And so this is not intended to teach us to despise knowledge. But knowledge must be the servant of love, and it must not be the servant of arrogance. Does this make sense to you? This is one of the reasons why when you leave here and you choose a church, you don't want to go to a church where the sermon is an exercise in reducing you to jealousy, envy, and respect for the preacher. 
In other words, a preacher that's clean and gives you a, a perfect presentation without any of his sin and personality. You don't want to do that. Why? Because that's knowledge that makes arrogant. And the sad thing is, if, if, if you go and sit under preaching where everything is a guy being a pulpiteer, and you're always thinking, he's so, so presentable. Why, I could bring my mother-in-law to hear him. What ends up happening is his pride corrupts your pride. And so you end up thinking more highly about yourself than you ought to because you think, well, he's my pastor, which is something nobody here has ever, ever thought about me. He's my pastor. You know, Eric is on the campus of IU and, do you know who my pastor is? a joke. (laughs) Lane, I know you think that, but... Okay, so, knowledge makes what? Arrogant. But love builds up. Listen, there's a principle here, and the principle is, if you have authority, mother, father, husband, professor, teacher, always look to find a long, sharp to poke yourself publicly. Always be killing the cult of you. Because you're there to serve the people under you. You're not there to build a name for yourself. Do you understand this? As a father of a home, you don't want a cult of the father in your home. All you want is what? You want to simply be useful. What we need is a whole lot more useful fathers and useful teachers and useful elders. We don't want any more big names. America is absolutely drowning in personality cults. And we don't need them. And the best way to keep that from happening in your home, with your children, with your marriage is just to find a long hat pin that's really sharp. And if you can't bring yourself to poke yourself in the belly with it, then give it to your wife. She'll do it. (laughs) And it's good. It's good for your children to see that you are a sinner. It's good for them to see that you know how to confess your sin. Knowledge puffs up. Love, what? Builds up. And it's loving for you to show your sin to the people that you lead. It's loving. All right. <clears throat> if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he's not yet known as he ought to know. Knowledge puffs up, makes arrogant, love builds up. If you think you know something, you, you don't yet know the way you should know. That's guaranteed. And so you can feel the Apostle Paul disciplining them, can't you? You know, it's like about the time that you think, well, I know the right answer to this question, you know, about things sacrificed to idols. Well, those people over there, you know, and they're all copying, you know, they all have my position, your position. Well, Apostle Paul, I'm willing to give you a hearing, but I already know what the truth is. And he says, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. If you think you know something, you don't yet know the way you should know. And so the Apostle Paul is a good dad. You know, he's hammering them down. About the time they think that maybe they have a leg to stand on, he 
he hammers them down, not because he takes delight in reducing the people under his authority to be little, like, uh, worms, you know, not because he has a malicious interest in making other people think nothing of themselves, but because he can't bring unity to the church until they all start humbling themselves, right? Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. You with me? If you think you know something, you still don't know the way you should know. And then listen to this. Then he says, but if anyone loves God, so now he's saying, okay, now back to religion, back to your faith. If anyone loves God, all right, and everybody at that point is going, okay, good, we're back to God. Yeah, I love God. And then he says this, if anyone loves God, he is known by him. And I fear that you have no idea how humiliating that statement is. But that statement is in harmony with everything that's come before it. Because that statement is him saying, you know, you say, anyone loves God, I love God, yeah, 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 yeah. And then he says this, if anyone loves God, he is known by him. A lot of times in scripture, in order to understand what's being said, what you have to do is you have to change it to the way you would naturally say it, and then think why the Bible doesn't say it the way you'd naturally say it. The way we'd naturally say this is, if anyone loves God, then he knows God. And so always look for the flips in scripture where it says something that you think, wait, wait, that's not the way I would have said it. And we would say... You know, it was interesting this morning in reading this uh, news account about um, that guy from Oxford, what, Dawkins, you know, and their rally at D.C. yesterday. <laughs> it was a skeptic site, an atheist site that I was reading because I wanted to get an actual transcript of what Dawkins said. All right, I couldn't find it. If any of you find it, I'd love to, to actually read it. But anyhow, I thought it was hilarious. It's an atheist site. It's the largest rally of skeptics and atheists in the history of mankind. At the top of the article, under the headline, before the beginning of the article, what do you think was the advertisement there? Anybody want to guess? No, it wasn't Shackley. Huh? No, it wasn't a Dawkins book. It wasn't Planned Parenthood. Are you ready? It was a big color advertisement for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. <laughs> the bots have their revenge. <laughs> Something about religion? Put Billy Graham, he'll pay. <laughs> You know, so this, this, this whole thing was about hating God, and there was Billy Graham there ready to save their souls. Now, why do I bring up Billy Graham? Well, Billy Graham has largely defined American understanding of the Christian faith over the last 50 to 75 years. And what you know from Billy Graham is that if anyone, what? If anyone loves God, what? He knows God. The buses will wait. Just slip your hand up right now. Come forward. 
And so I want you, again, to hear what the text of Scripture says. What it says is not, if anyone loves God, he knows God. What it says is, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Because this is liberating for you. You're not here this morning because you know God. You're here this morning because God knows you. And you say, no, he can't know me because I did my hair and I tucked my shirt in and I brushed my teeth and I... I, I've done everything I can to keep anybody here from knowing me. I'm acting like I love my wife. I'm holding her hand. Can't you see me? Everything I'm doing here should present to you an image that is safe and clean, okay? And so God doesn't know me, and I hope you don't know me either, Because if you knew me, you wouldn't let me be here. And if God knew me, I'd be struck by lightning and I'd die. And what the Bible says is, if anyone, what? If anyone loves God. And you say, well, I don't love God, but but I have spirituality. I have I have inside of myself a need for religion. I am a spiritual person. I'm not going to say I love God, but I know that God is worthy of my love. I can't bring myself to love God. And what it says is if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Listen. God knows you. God knows me. (laughs) There is no place we can go. If we go to the bottom of Cash's Ledge off the Atlantic coast, he is there. If we go down to where, what's his face? Cameron is going to go in the Pacific Ocean. Deepest, deepest point. Down there, it will be brilliant light in the sight of God. James Cameron will not be able to escape the knowledge of God, of him. If you go up to the top of Everest, you're in the death zone dying. God is there. If you drink yourself to oblivion so that you don't even remember what happened last, God was there every single thing. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that God has numbered every hair on our head, which is something you haven't done. You don't even know how many hairs you have on, God knows how many hairs you have on your head. Listen, you're not fooling anybody here this morning. You are a sinner. You are a wicked woman, a wicked man, a wicked child. And those of you who are older say, oh, don't say little children are wicked. I say, okay, little children are wicked. Don't say it. Little children are wicked. Little children spring from the womb corrupted by Adam's fall. That's the nature of children. 
And Cynthia, I don't believe it about you, but I take it by faith from God that you are just as sinful as I am. You know? And if I were to ask you, I'm sure you could tell me your sins, couldn't you? Yeah. It's so precious to see little children growing up with soft hearts confessing their sin. Because it gives me faith that God can forgive me, that God knows me, and that God is, is, is unbelievably liberal in his love, in his treasures. You realize how liberal God's creation is right now? This spring has been unbelievable. You know, you see all of the tulips and all of the what Jody was talking, Ferris Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature. God is unbelievably liberal with his goods, with his riches. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He causes us, having been molested by our Father, to love him the heavenly father. Unbelievable treasures of God. He causes us to marry and to somehow, sometimes, actually love our wives. Where did that come from? <laughs> you know, didn't see that with my dad. <laughs> Unbelievable. He causes the seasons. While the earth remains, he's given us a promise in Genesis that springtime and harvest, cold and winter, summer and winter, they will yet remain. They will continue. And so we come back and we look at ourselves and we look at God and what the Bible says is if any man loves God, he is known of God. It does not say that if any man loves God, it's because he knew God and came to God and got baptized and, and, and had the sacraments do their things and then went to daily mass or, or read his Bible every single day and, and kept the Robert Murray McChain calendar of Bible readings and at the end of the year was able to report and he did his memory work for David's Mighty Men and, and then he also went to Bible college and became a pastor and, and uh, then his wife was very pretty. That's religion. What the Bible says is if any man loves God, he is known by God. And so what you have to realize is that if religion is true, if any religion anywhere on the face of the earth is true, it is the religion where God knows us. And then, because God knows us, we love him. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Do you know what the Bible tells us? If you look at the end of this text, it's, it's interesting that it says, yet for us there is but one God, and then it says what? Uh, and then it says what? Uh, thank you. Did somebody actually say it? It's the lawyer. Go ahead, say it again. Oh, it was John. Yeah, say it. What does it say? The Father. Can't you all say it? If anybody, what? What's the word? The Father. Do you realize that the Bible tells us that one of the key indicators that we belong to God 
is the fact that our hearts cry out, Abba, Father, to him. This is what scripture says. That we know we belong to him because our hearts cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. And so look at what it's saying. It's saying, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Then it says, God is the Father, not a father, the father. And then it tells us that we know we belong to him because our hearts cry out, Abba, Father. And so let me back into this truth instead of coming forward into it. And so if today you find in your heart a hunger for daddy, not me, not your father, not your husband, not your grandfather. You find in yourself a hunger for daddy, from whom all fatherhood gets its name. Do you realize that this is an indication that God knows you? Why? Well, because you love God. And you say, wait a second, that's not why he knows me, because I love him. No, you love him because he knows you. And because he knows you, he has put love for him in his heart. And how do you know that you love God? Because your heart cries out, Abba, Father! Abba, Father! Abba, Father! Abba, Father! And why am I yelling it? The reason I'm yelling it is, there are some things that are so countercultural that you better yell them or they'll never come out of your mouth. There's nothing you can say today that's more countercultural than to cry out, Daddy, Father, Daddy! <laughs> and the minute your heart cries out, Daddy, Father, the minute that comes out of you, then you know that you love God. And you know If you love God, he knows you. And I know at this point you're sitting there going, no, he doesn't know me. He couldn't love me. It's impossible that anyone who has done the things I've done could be loved by God and known by God. And then I say to you, so do you cry out? Do you cry out, Abba, Father? Do you cry out, Abba, Father? And you say, well, yes, I say, so then he knows you. Because that's what scripture says. It says, this is how we know we belong to him because our hearts cry out, Abba, Father. (laughs) And that means he knows you. Because if you didn't cry out, Abba, Father, it's because he doesn't know you. You may be very religious, but he doesn't know you. But when you come to God, he draws you to himself, your heart can't stop crying out, Abba, Father. It's impossible. And then what you know is that he knows you. He knows you. 
The Bible says this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And there is no sin that I have committed that is not known by God. And if my heart cries out, Father, he knows me. And one of the beautiful things about the church is that God, being a tender father, settles the widow and the orphan in the household of faith. And there we are in all our glory, loved and being loved. We're loved by the singles despite being fat and old and married. We're loved by the childless despite ten children. We're loved by the women despite being men. And we just all of a sudden are reduced to being sons of God. All of us. All of us in our sin and stupidity and obstinacy and lust and pride and everything we are. We're loved. And you say, yeah, by God. And I say, no, by brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. There is no single person in this church because you have sons and daughters. Did you just see them all up here? What is Ben? Is Ben... What is he? What is he? Is he a single man? Or is he a father? (laughs) There are no orphans here. Because we have God, and he knows us. And so we don't have to be embarrassed. We don't have to hide. (laughs) You belong. (laughs) I mean, come on. That's, That's like, think of all the time Scripture tells us to party. To be happy. And why would you be happy? Well, because you don't have to walk around with skull and crossbones on your shirt acting like you're bad to the bone. And it's a joke anyhow. Because the dude with S&M stuff and the skull and crossbone, he just craves a household and fatherhood. And so you don't believe what he's saying anyhow. You just know that he's dressed the way he is because he's alienated. You don't think it's like a real posture he's copping. What you really think is he's in bondage. And he doesn't know that there is a God in heaven who exists and who knows him, who knows his hairs on his head more than he could ever imagine knowing them himself, knows his thoughts when he's asleep and doesn't remember his dreams. That nothing is hidden from God, and that God says to him, what? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Don't you just want to go down the aisles of Walmart 
and just yell that at the top of your lungs. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart. And that's the one thing you can't buy. Where else can you go to find rest and to take it from somebody who's meek and humble of heart? Is the linguistics department going to give you that? And then he says, his yoke is easy, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light, and you shall find rest for your souls. Those are the promises. Listen. Listen to me, people. Listen to me carefully. This morning on the way to church, I was overwhelmed with my sin. Overwhelmed. And as I pulled onto Airport Road and I began to turn here on and right, I just thought to myself, that there is no hope for me, none. And I prayed and I asked God to please be merciful to me, to look down on me and all of my, and what I want to say is brokenness, but that's so disgusting. It's not about me. It's not about how I feel. And so I'll change it. Would he look down on me in my sin? Because all of a sudden, instead of me, me, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about him. I want to see myself as an offense against the living God having vowed and promised, having preached to others. I want to see myself as God sees me. I don't want to go to him as that one more pomo, pathetic, narcissistic. I want to talk about me, you know, I'm broken. Well, of course I'm broken. I'm broken because I don't honor God. That's why I'm broken. I don't need to hear about me. I need to hear about him. I need to see his glory. And then I see his glory and I'm reduced. Woe is me. And then I pray and I say, God, would you please have mercy on me? Please have mercy on me. Please. And God in his kindness knows me. And when I call out to him, I find that his burden is light. I, I find that the very thing I think is going to kill me is like blessings. It's like it's being born again, 58 years old, born again. 
born again. Nothing shocks him. He put the sins of the world on his son. And his son said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so I plead with God for mercy. I'm a pastor. I'm a grandfather. I'm a husband. And I come to church in the morning very early, and as I turn down the street, I'm pleading with God for mercy through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then I come to worship, and I look at you, and you're my sheep, and I want to feed you, but I fear that my sin will keep me from being able to feed you. And God, in his mercy, delights in lifting up the widow and the orphan. And the senior pastor who sins. And he could have had angels here this morning preaching to you. But it pleases him to have me preach to you. And you say, well, you're disgusting. I say, I know. And so, can you lower yourself to eat from my hand? Can you give yourselves to God? He answered my prayer. He answered my prayer. He used, and I know that it sounds horrible, but he used me this morning. And that's mind-boggling. And so, what are you waiting for? What, what is it that you know about yourself that God doesn't know? What is it that you can't afford to bring to him? Why can't you call him father? Why? Come! Listen, if I can come, you can come. Promise. And here's his promise. He says, For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. And you will find rest for your soul. You wonder why I cry up here. And it's because of the gifts that you give me as I preach. Clint, thank you. The faith of you people is so encouraging to me. And you just open your lives up to us and let us 
love you, and then you love us in your sin and in our sin. It's beautiful. And that's what God uses to have me preach. Because there's so much faith in this room. So much faith. Trust me. If you don't know it, trust me. It's unbelievably beautiful. So anyhow, that's the sermon. I might be crying afterwards. But I'm from Philadelphia. We're probably weird. Um, But there are tears all through Scripture, so don't be scandalized by it. 